This is Boom, the Southeastern Commerce Podcast, brought to you by the law firm of Adams and Reese. We talk with regional leaders in trade, economic development, government, and business as we explore what's new and what's shaking from Texas to Washington, D.C. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Kane with Adams and Reese in New Orleans. Welcome to the first episode of Boom, the Southeastern Commerce Podcast, where we talk trade, economic development, and business issues affecting the region. Today, we'll be focusing on the greater New Orleans economy, the state of the port of New Orleans, and port trends, and looking ahead to 2020. We've got three excellent guests with us today. First, we've got Brandy Christian, who's the president and CEO of the Port of New Orleans. Brandy comes from the Port of San Diego. Uh, which is two things we stole from San Diego that are excellent, both Drew Brees and Brandy. And Brandy has taken over New Orleans, uh, the port industry, and doing an incredible job here in New Orleans. We look forward to talking with you. Uh, we also have Michael Heck, who is the president and CEO of Greater New Orleans, Inc. Michael is recognized as one of 10 people who made a difference in the South. Uh, his family's been here in New Orleans since the 1830s, or in Louisiana mm-hmm. since the 1830s. And on the side, he's better known as DJ El Camino. Uh, we also have Zach Butterworth. Uh, Zach has joined our GR team here at Adams and Reese about over a year and a half ago, coming from Mayor Landrieu's administration. He also worked for Congressman Richmond and for Senator Landrieu. And if you need any fishing tips, he's a charter captain and knows where to bring you. Uh, got to be good at something. Right. Yes. Everybody's got a sign. So. so welcome, guys. We Look, we've got some excellent news to talk about off the top, which is the airport announcement that we recently had and the, the new airport looks just absolutely incredible. I know some of you guys had an opportunity to be there for the grand opening and just want to get your thoughts on what you think about the airport and what does it mean for New Orleans. Michael, we'll start with you. Great. Chris, thanks. It's great to, to be here. You know, I think that the, the airport opening is one of the most significant uh, events that we've had in recent times in New Orleans, in the region, in the state. I would put it on par with the reopening of the Superdome, and I think actually it will surpass that. Um, What's so impressive about the airport at first look, literally, is I think it's one of the most beautiful, elegant airports in the country and maybe the world right now. It's not just big and bright and clean and new, but it has kind of a sculptural quality, almost like being inside a Richard Serra sculpture. It's just a moving experience. What's been talked about less, which is actually maybe even more significant about the airport, is that it's actually, from a business model perspective, a drastic improvement over the previous one. Uh, The business model of airports is that they take all non-airline revenue, which is retail and parking largely, then they subtract the operating cost, which is the cost of running basically a shopping mall with airplanes, and whatever is left over is the cost per passenger that the airlines share. Uh, Because this new airport is going to have better retail behind security, and because it's going to be much more cost efficient than the current terminal, the cost per passenger is going to be lower, and that's going to mean we're going to have uh, even more flights. And Zach, you had an opportunity to kind of see this now from both sides. You worked on the project when you were with uh, the mayor's administration, and now you get the opportunity to see it open. What are your thoughts? Look, it's a great facility, and it took a huge team from the city of New Orleans to the aviation board to the city council, uh, Kinner City Councils, and mayor there, uh, Jefferson Parish, the state of Louisiana. I think. You know, it's remarkable that this long after Katrina, we were able to come together and do something this big that required this many people to pull in the same direction. So kudos to everybody that played a part in it. And uh, it's not often that in our community we have a 
billion dollar asset added to the books and and we're excited about it and, and Brandy from your standpoint a good airport means uh, more visitors and more access I would imagine to the cruise world and, and how do you see it impacting the port of New Orleans? Absolutely Chris thanks for having me here today you know it's wonderful to see such an elegant terminal open up when I came to New Orleans a little over four years ago we were at the old facility and in trying to attract cruise lines that is a critical piece of infrastructure that the cruise lines that's the first impression for most cities um, so to see the investment not only the benefit to local residents we benefit obviously from the amenity but airports really become an attractor of corporations of business and absolutely cruise line business and in the reverse the cruise line business is essentially guaranteeing passengers for the airport terminal, which in return gives confidence to the airlines to put in direct services, domestic and international, which we all would love to see more direct services. Because um, about 90% of cruise passengers come from out of state, mm-hmm. and over 32% of those fly through the airport. So it's very exciting to see the grand opening. Well, it's great. And again, it's an exciting time. Uh, we had second lines leaving and second lines coming in in the last couple of days here to open the airport. And, and Chris, if I could just give one piece of breaking news that I just learned uh, about two hours ago is that because the flight's been so successful, British Airways is just publicly committed to now going to six days a week on the wow. direct flight to London. That's wow. incredible. That's great. That's awesome. Well, thanks for that information. And, and again, it's in large part to the work that GNO Inc. has done and others to try to make sure we get a new airport and, and dedicated service internationally and to, to more stops in the United States to make Louisiana as accessible as possible. Uh, turning to uh, another kind of inaugural groundbreaking report that Greater New Orleans Inc. was involved in with uh, with Bank of America, uh, Merrill Lynch, I believe, is the Greater New Orleans Job Report. Can you tell us a little bit about what's behind that report and, and what the findings were, Michael? Yeah, of course. This is uh, our effort to not only map uh, what's happening today, but where the jobs of the future are going to be in the region. And we're doing this not just to inform the public and let businesses know what we see is happening, but we've got a very close partnership with our universities. And so it's a way of helping them design curricula that's going to speak to the future needs of our businesses uh, and ensure growth. And the good news is that what we're seeing in our region is a diversification. It's a diversification that has not historically happened here. Houston did it after the oil bust of the 80s. We didn't and we suffered by comparison. But now you see traditional foundational industries that have made us great for centuries, like international trade, are doing very well. We are number two in the nation for foreign direct investment on a per capita basis. You also see things like advanced manufacturing doing fantastic with Michu, building the mission to the moon and the mission to Mars, and with LM Wind Power, a GE company, designing and testing the longest windmill blades in the world. So those traditional industries are doing great and we're seeing facilities come online all up and down the river, a lot of it driven by natural gas. But you also see diversifying industries that are growing, technology most significantly. Uh, We are currently the seventh fastest growing tech sector in the entire country, and within that we're ranked number two for women in tech and number nine for African Americans holding technology jobs. And so we call that inclusive innovation, and we think that that's very important as well. And the final thing the report points out, which is interesting, is that We've got a coastal master plan, which is going to go on for decades. It's going to be tens of billions of dollars. And the plan points out that there's also going to be a lot of uh, opportunity for jobs and wealth creation uh, in that work. And a lot of the skills involved are really the same skills that have been traditionally used in oil and gas, except now instead of pushing oil through the pipes, we're pushing sand. And so it's a translatable skill 
for a lot of the Louisiana workforce. Excellent. That's a, it's a, not only an exciting report, but the, the analytics can help form how we move forward and plan our investments. You think that's the biggest outcome of what we're going to see from the report? Well, that's the idea. I mean, you hate to use a, a hockey analogy in New Orleans, but it's the old Wayne Gretzky skating to the puck idea. And with our GNOU program that we have now working with our universities, we're trying to help them uh, design their future curricula. In fact, it was uh, Larissa Littleton-Stive, the new chancellor of Delgado, and I said, what's your vision for Delgado? And she said, well, we want to make Delgado the university of the future. And so if that's the idea, then we're helping describe the future so that they can aspire to be part of it. Well, and you can't talk about jobs in New Orleans without talking about the port, obviously. It's the reason why we're here in New Orleans and centrally located in the proximity to the Mississippi and the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, Brandy, you you guys constantly are talking about not only the impact you have on the economy, but the support you have in direct and indirect jobs. Can you tell us what the state of, uh, of that looks like right now at the board and what, what we can look forward to? You know, as Michael mentioned, the traditional economies of New Orleans have really been the two drivers have been maritime traditionally as well as hospitality and the ports role and activities in both of those arenas are very strong. Uh, we recently, too, just updated our economic impact analysis with Stephen Barnes at LSU. We were very pleased to see the job growth numbers and direct jobs just in the region were about 9,000 and statewide about 21,000 related to port activity. I think what was most exciting about what we learned in the study was that looking at the opportunities and the jobs created in the port and maritime industry, I kind of describe it as a job for everyone because there are jobs for skilled labor like the longshoremen working out at the wharves to the professional technicals, the engineers, to the executives and the managerial running cargo brokerage firms, shipping companies. Um, it's a real variety of skill and educational levels. And the study found that those jobs in the maritime industry are about 74,000 annual salary. That's about 31% higher than the average job wow. here in the region. Right. So these are family sustaining jobs that have significant impact and provide an opportunity across a very large demographic. So we were most excited to see that and really thinking how can we move that type of quality job forward in terms of the economy. That's incredible. I didn't realize it was that high, but that's that's an impressive number in terms of uh, the quality of jobs that we're attracting at the port. Um, you can't talk about, unfortunately, this stage of the game about port trends and what's going on globally without talking about the tariff situation and, um, and and its impact, whether positive or negative. And I've seen some interesting reports on how it's uh, really, truly impacting not just the port of New Orleans, but all the ports. And, and from my take, I don't think the expectations have lined up with the concerns that maybe allied prior to these announcements and how it's played out. Can you tell us, let, let us hear from you on how you're perceiving uh, the tariff impact to the Port of New Orleans specifically and then globally um, in, in terms of our economy? Well, I think within the port industry and cargo in general, cargo is very sensitive to geopolitical issues, to economic issues, and it really doesn't like uncertainty uncertainty in its supply chain and its prices. So obviously there's been an impact. I think something Michael mentioned earlier, strategically, the port has always made the decision to stay very diversified in its cargo. So we've had some impacts on specific cargo or commodities, but fortunately doing very well in some other sectors that we've been able to manage the bottom line. I think 
the largest impact for us is we've always been within the top three as an importer, um, a port that brings in rubber, uh, steel, other metals. So on the, that um, segment of our cargo, what we traditionally call break bulk, initially we lost about 30% of that volume. Uh, currently, we're about 10%. Again, we were able to, because of our diversity, adjust the bottom line to um, make up for that loss. But what also we're optimistic about is we are seeing other commodities that are, are flowing through as well. A good example is wind energy, the large components that Michael mentioned. Um, there's a number of projects in the pipeline. There are tax incentives around wind energy. You start to see those flow through the river. So we've been able to pick up some other cargoes as well. Also, the petrochemical plants that are being developed up and down the river those construction projects come in as very large steel components that get shipped through the river. That, you know, is picking up some new commodities, but in generally what we're seeing is in terms of big projects, people are uncertain. They're kind of slow rolling some projects, waiting to see what happens. Um, so there's definitely been an impact, but the key to us being able to maneuver that is one, the diversification, but also as those supply chains start to stabilize, if trade negotiations are successful, that we're ready to handle that cargo and that we have the facilities that are flexible enough to move from, from moving steel to be able to suddenly move wind energy. And, and that goes to, I think, the strategic planning that the port's been doing. Um, I don't think when you probably started your, your strategic planning, you had a tariff war in your mind, but the diversification now allows you to strategically plan for the stabilization of tariffs. Mm -hmm. and, and it sounds like from the outside's point of view, that particularly the Port of New Orleans is posturing itself to capture what it is diversified to do and moving forward be able to bring back uh, some of the cargo that it, it has lost as a result mm -hmm. of the, the tariff issues. And, and Chris, if I could just add one thing, I think that one of the reasons if you did kind of an unscientific poll of the GNOA constituency, that reaction to the tariff war and against it has been muted is, is first and foremost because the port is reporting out that they're actually doing okay mm -hmm. through it. That was what people were primarily concerned about. But also there's, I think, a general understanding that there are challenges with China, with their trade practices, particularly with the way they handle IP and issues of IP theft. And so I think there's an understanding that some type of, of response was necessary. And I think folks just wish that the administration explained the necessity of this in, in a better way. It didn't just brush off a trade war as easy, but said uh, it's not easy, but it might be necessary. That's a great point. Uh, well, in addition to the tariff issue, which is more of a geopolitical concern, here locally in New Orleans, what impacts our entire community, particularly the port, is our infrastructure. And uh, I think right now, as a state, we sit somewhere around $14 billion in backlogs. We haven't had a gas tax increase since 1989, I believe it was. And we're desperate to come up with a strategy to either mix private investment or to come up with a public solution to cure the issue. Uh, Zach, you know this all too well because when you were at, at the city of New Orleans, we recognized that we had a serious sewage and waterboard uh, issue as it relates to drainage, uh, which ties directly into our local infrastructure. What are your thoughts on the state of where we are relative to our infrastructure fixes and maybe some of the things that the current administration uh, Mayor Cantrell, who uh, who appears to had had a successful uh, session last year to try to come up with some solutions on some band-aids, recognizably that this is not the long-term solution, but 
to try to get us fixed. What are your thoughts? So we're an infrastructure dependent city. We have levees that keep our water out from storm surge, keep the Mississippi River out of the city. We have pumps that pump every drop of water that land inside the city out of the city. Um, and so that that's remarkable right there. We're one of the only cities in the world that has that scenario facing us. And so those things aren't cheap, right? Uh, on top of that, the lifeblood of our city, the Mississippi River, it requires regular dredging, and that's been that way and will be continue to be that way. So, uh, you know, infrastructure is a, a challenge that, you know, New Orleans is sort of on the forefront of tackling. Regarding the Sewage and Water Board, they have a $10 billion, 10-year capital plan that really needs to be funded. And, um, you know, they have funding laid out for the next few years, but how that happens long-term is going to depend on that, the taxpayers that, in New Orleans. That's a little scary, $10 billion. That's like 10 airports that took us a couple of years to build. That's right. And just to, to clarify that, $10 billion, Zach, is that to maintain and improve the current system or to build the system of the future? It's both. Right. It's both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that, that's the general number right. that they're using. Um, and that's not a wish list, right? That's a it's a must list. list. It's a must list. So, you know, this administration is going to have to figure out exactly how to do that. The, the last administration secured $2 billion for for road improvements, and those are hitting the ground now. And so those are much needed and necessary. But the Sewage and Water Board sort of has three major components, right? It's drainage, sewage, and water, right? And right now our sewage is pretty well funded and operates pretty well. Water, we've had a number of boil water advisories uh, related to, you know, any number of infrastructure challenges, but still that's relatively well funded. And then the drainage. Drainage, it's no secret, is not well funded. And so it's short tens of millions of dollars every year in the operation and maintenance money it needs to have that modern system. And it seems like, you know, you have these pictorial moments when we recognize there is a, like a vehicle stuck in a drain and we had a lot of flood events around it. That sort of wakes up New Orleans to these issues, and it seems like we have maybe one of those windows where everybody is focused and back on the, the reality that we need to get on the same page. Yeah, I mean, I want to give a lot of credit to this mayor for owning the issue, yeah. uh, for bringing in somebody of the national caliber quality, like Gasson Corbin, who's running Sewer and Water Board right now. And now our task at hand is to begin to restore public confidence uh, in the sewer and water board because we've got money needs and probably the next one is going to be a drainage fee of some sort. Now the good news about this is that if it's structured correctly and everybody who puts water into the system contributes, that would include nonprofits like universities, hospitals, the church, then you could have a scenario quite realistically where we could actually increase the amount of funding that's coming to sewer and water board, but the actual amount that individuals would currently pay would not have to go up because you've broadened the system of folks who are paying. That's going to be, uh, I think, the next significant political and practical step towards uh, creating a system which not only is an improvement over the current system, but also incorporates a lot of the urban water plan passive elements like retention ponds, because we, we can build a system that can handle a once-in-10-year uh, event, that can handle 10 inches of rain. But when we get a 1-100, 1-1,000-year event, which seems to happen every 30 years, you're going to have to have passive elements to ensure that there's not major damage to property and individuals. Yeah, and the climatologists are telling us that we're getting about the same amount of rain. It's just coming in taller spikes. Right. Right. And so the Sewage and Water Board was built, and the infrastructure was built to account for rain over certain periods of time. And now that's shifting. And mm-hmm. we can blame it on whoever you want to blame it on, but that's something that the infrastructure will have to track. And right. if it doesn't, we're going to continue to have 
these same events. Uh, well, I, yeah, and Zach, and you're seeing it from an industrial development standpoint. Uh, you know, the city now has a stormwater management program in place where when you go to pull permits, uh, like other areas that are low-lying or have flooding issues, uh, you've got to take into consideration what impact you're going to have to the drainage system. The problem with it is it does add cost to construction, mm-hmm. and we've seen some projects get, get hung up on that. But, you know, those sorts of things seem to be uh, how the private side needs to participate and, and address it while we focus on how do we fund the $10 billion program relative to drainage. Well, it's not just the water issue in terms of, of sewage and water board that our, our area needs to focus on infrastructure. Uh, the lifeline of the whole city in terms of the port obviously comes through the port. Mm-hmm. Dredging has been a major issue. Mm-hmm. Capacity for uh, for terminals, both cruise side and, and on the container side. Uh, a lot of folks don't know the Port of New Orleans actually, I think, probably owns more bridges in the city of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And they're for sale. I'm sure you'd love to get rid of them if you could. Uh, but tell us, uh, the port is tackling infrastructure on a, on a daily basis. And tell us what you're doing to try to get out in front of it. Mm-hmm. You know, Chris, I often say that markets attract the business, but it's infrastructure that closes the deal. And the infrastructure around the river, around maritime, is significant and extremely expensive. Um, if you look at our current container facilities... Um, they were repurposed from old breakbulk wharves. The state and the port have put almost a billion dollars into the Napoleon Container Terminal over you know, decade or so um, to get us to this point where we are in our growth, and we're really at a tipping point. I think what's exciting is the Gulf is really seeing a lot of attraction by cruise lines, by particularly container carriers. So there's a lot of business opportunity there, but at the end of the day, for us, infrastructure actually begins at the mouth of the river. Right now, the, the channel is naturally deep, you know, plus 50 feet. But when you get to the mouth of the river, we're dredged to about 45 feet. Uh, the great news is that the Army Corps has completed their studies. It had a significant return on investment because it's not just to Louisiana. It's to all the states in the Midwest, all the way up the tributaries, the Mississippi River, that if that mouth was not functioning, that it would shut down commerce to all of those those states. Um, they've authorized the study, and the state has actually identified, the administration's identified the matching funds. So it's very feasible that you could see the Mississippi River dredge to 50 feet within the next few years. Um, that obviously gives us more flexibility, because when you talk about trends in our business, particularly the cruise business and the containerized cargo, the trend is bigger ships. And if you can't take the bigger ships, then, you know, at the end of the day, Port of New Orleans is the only container terminal, the only cruise terminal for the state of Louisiana. It takes Louisiana out of that game. And there are many, many surrounding golf courses that would love to pick up the business that is naturally destined here for um, the Mississippi River. So the dredging is extremely important. I think the, the second part for infrastructure for the port is that demand that we're seeing on the containerized business. We've doubled our volumes in the last 10 years um, in containerized cargo, and a lot of that growth has come from the investment in the petrochemical industry, Um, the shipment of the plastic and resins that they create. They actually containerize them and ship them across the world. Significant amounts of growth and significant amount of new business that's coming online with the new plants coming online. The port has to be ready to handle that volume because about two-thirds of a petrochemical plant's decision to choose Louisiana over Texas is, yes, the natural gas supply, but two-thirds of that decision is the transportation infrastructure. 
if that port cannot get my product to market in and out of the river, then we're not very competitive. I'm going to put my plant in Texas where the port can handle the volume. So we have to be positioned to be able to continue to take the larger ships. So we're currently studying multiple sites downriver before the Crescent City Connection Bridge that can handle larger vessels because those terminals are extremely expensive. As I mentioned, they take time to develop. But really, with two container terminals, we'll be able to handle a much broader market from small carriers to the large carriers. But if you think about it, getting the Mississippi River to 50 feet and no air restrictions with a bridge, we will be in a better position than any port in the Gulf. Yeah, and, and I know a little bit about the petrochemical world and the plastics opportunity, uh, of course, but let me mention this, because this is what I think, when you talk about focusing investment on all the items you just talked about, we're more competitive than Houston. Uh, you look at southwest Louisiana and where this petrochemical uh, corridor is there mm-hmm. in proximity to Houston, and it's more attractive, even with those challenges that we're dealing with, for that cargo to come to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Now, we built some of the private side infrastructure for the packaging and value add, uh, and we've got good rail service, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about here in a minute. Uh, but that growth in the petrochemical market is a long play, and the investment now on each of those items, I think, is going to create a large benefit for us. And you, know, you mentioned, uh, I mentioned just a second ago about about the rail and investment and infrastructure. Uh, Zach, you were involved largely with, a, with again, a, a number of other folks from the city of New Orleans on the public belt. And initially, when, uh, when Mayor Landrieu started shaking the tree and putting a little heat in the system, as they say, on the public belt, and I think he asked the question several times, why does the city of New Orleans operate public belt um, and there was a lot of concern and a lot of um, heartburn from the, the stakeholders on what's going to happen because of the comfort level of knowing what you got. Talk with us briefly about how the public belt conversation came to be and then we'll get Brandy's input on how things are looking since the transaction of the Port of New Orleans acquiring the New Orleans public belt. Yeah, I think Mayor Landrieu's theory of governing was to look at your assets and figure out what's their highest and best use. And um, as we went down the list of different assets from the World Trade Center and to the airport, we got to the the public belt and said, does it make sense for the city of New Orleans to own a railroad? Mm -hmm. Not many cities own railroads. So we hired KPMG at the time to do an analysis and to come up with sort of a scoping of what, what could this look like and how could this either better generate revenue for the city of New Orleans and increase job growth in the city, help the port to grow and help the stakeholders to grow. And the outcome of that entire process, and I think it's been a great one, was to transfer the public belt to the port. And, you know, Brandy was uh, instrumental in that deal coming together. And I'll turn it over to her to finish the end of the, the good part of the story. <laughs> Well, thank you, Zach. You know, I agree. It was an interesting conversation. I was newer to the region, um, looking at the opportunity. If you think about Louisiana, we're a very small state compared to our competitors around us. We're a smaller population. If you look at the cargo that moves into the Port of Houston, 85% of that cargo stays and is consumed by all the population around it. Being a smaller state, our competitiveness really is through the rail system and through the river system because we artificially extend ourselves to those populations. So when you start to have a conversation about growth of the port, you know, I think traditionally people and ports have thought of themselves as only worrying about the water side and building terminals. 
in today's world, as I call it, the Amazon world, where it's all about logistics and supply chains, you have to think about the inland system. And the opportunity with the public belt and for the Port of New Orleans to be aligned was that it really took a lot of risk and uncertainty out of that supply chain and allowed for the port and the railroad together to not only focus on short-term but also long-term strategy, capital investment, which was you know desperately needed. Um, we are now fully integrated. You know, we've seen tremendous success just in the first two years. Our intermodal growth, which is basically containers moving on rail, we're up 22% since we've acquired the railroad. And a big part of that was us coming together to work with Kansas City Southern to get direct service to Dallas. That has been extremely successful. We focused on the community. What can we do operationally? Where can we implement automation to reduce the impacts to the community, like block crossings? Um, that's very frustrating for any, any resident to deal with, and it's not very efficient for the railroad. We've been able to move our dwell time, the time that a, a rail car sits in the system, from 19 hours to 14 hours. Mm -hmm. The industry benchmark is 24 hours. So we're seeing a lot of operational efficiency because together the port and the railroad working together, we can plan better for that and utilize each other's assets. You know, we have been able to reduce the expenses of the railroad, looking at redundancy in personnel. Um, we've decreased the operating ratio of the railroad by 10% just in the first year. And we are doing a number of capital projects like doubling the storage capacity of the railroad. Those projects will be done within a year and a half. It'll double all storage throughout the gateway. So we've had, a, it was a great opportunity. I think it was very progressive for I think both the port, for the administration to think about not just how um, to look at it from a financial standpoint, but how do we work together that it can be a win-win, that it grows the economy. And I think in the end, that's what the result will be. I mean, I think that maybe it was missed a bit, but this deal and the swap of the railroad to the port and then the city getting control of the Governor Nichols Wharf so that the Crescent Park could be contiguous along the river, was a true political masterstroke. I mean, it was one of those really smart win-win deals that you don't see all the time. And I think folks should recognize this was things being done the right way. And the public is benefiting, not just from the jobs that are going to come out of uh, an improved public belt, but now we're going to have what's going to at one point become the longest contiguous riverfront park in the country. And that's partially because the city now controls that war. So it was a, a fabulous deal. And it's playing out, I think, as well as we could have hoped. And I'll close this issue from a political standpoint. It, it's a new trend that we're seeing uh, in terms of, of not creating more parochialism, but aligning our assets and our best people to do what they can do. And, and that's what you see here with the city taking over certain assets and the, and the port and the belt being on the same page. So it's, it's incredible. And, and I know there's more to come. And so we will look forward to hearing that in, in the future. We're getting close to uh, the end of our time. I'd like just to Go around the table real quick and, and get your thoughts on, uh, if you were to, to think about your, your top one or two concerns in a short uh, description that our region has and needs to face as we move forward into 2020. If I had to say two things, I would say continued economic diversification and growth. We just need more different jobs for more different people and ensuring that people get connected to those jobs via the right training and awareness and so forth. So that's one. That's kind of the obvious answer. And the other uh, is this infrastructure issue, um, fixing drainage 
and getting it right really is the existential challenge for us in New Orleans and in the region because as New Orleans goes, so will go the region. So those are the two things that uh, kind of keep me staring at the ceiling at night. God, I'd echo what Michael says. At the end of the day, I think for me, what keeps me awake at night, just thinking from a maritime perspective and then branching out beyond what's in our direct control is infrastructure. Um, it's a challenge across the United States for every city. They're not building highways and roads fast enough. Um, we have significant investments we have to make to be able not just to keep the business we have, but really grab a bigger share of the pie. Um, that's billions of dollars of investment, but there's many things outside our gate, like sewer and water board. That is absolutely essential to retaining our business and growing our business. So at the end of the day, it, it's infrastructure. So I'm going to come at the infrastructure issue, but a little different way. New Orleans has always had a competitive advantage because we were a cheaper place to live than mm -hmm. some of the bigger metropolitan areas. But with all the needed infrastructure investments, we can't lose that competitive advantage because uh, if we don't have that, certainly we're, we're, we're going to be behind. Yeah, and I, I would just add, from my standpoint, I agree with everything you guys just said. I would add the one concern, which I think is very, very specific to Orleans Parish, is the crime issue, and, and to some part Jefferson Parish. And we've made a lot of strides, and there's a lot of effort being focused on it, but that's another issue that I think when you have C-suite people coming into town and look to move companies, which will attract a lot of jobs, that's a stat that you look at, and, and we need to continue to focus on. Yeah, I'll just get two, two things. The good news bad. The good news is that I think we're going to see ourselves this year at about a 50-year low in terms of homicide rate and shootings, and that's outstanding because that's happened along with declining incarceration rates, kind of similar to what we saw in New York back in the 90s. Uh, the bad news is that even with that historic decline, there are places like New York City today where the rate is still 10 times lower. So uh, we have a long ways to go. Yeah, great point. Uh, well, the most important question of the day uh, as we get close to cocktail hour, is I want to know where in New Orleans is your favorite place to get an old-fashioned? If you don't drink an old-fashioned, then whatever your favorite cocktail is. Um, right now, it could be the fig-infused old-fashioned at Boulogne, perhaps. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. Kind of a modern twist. Uh, I like it. A classic. I like it. Well, I'm not an old-fashioned gal, so I'd say a French 75 works for me. I am uh, there with this lady. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Commanders is always nice, but really, when you just want to relax, Bacchanal for French 75. Very good. And by the way, for a San Diegoan, mm -hmm. is that right? You certainly have figured New Orleans out. Uh, you, you're always enjoying our culture and uh, see you marching around on Mardi Gras parades, and that's awesome, and your family as well. So I'm, I'm taking it that you're, you're marrying into our culture very well. Yes, and very it. easy to adapt to. I would say you're self-actualized. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm more of a wine guy, and so I think to get a great bottle of red wine, I think I would say Marcello's on St. Charles. Very good. Well, I'm glad that you guys saved the old fashions for me. I'll take all of them. <laughs> My crafts at Galatoire's, preferably. Um, but look, I enjoyed it, guys. Thank you so much, uh, Zach, Brandy, Michael. This has been, obviously, our first episode, and, and you are incredible people. Our community is very grateful for having talent like yours to help drive us and move us forward. We talked a lot about infrastructure. Our next podcast is going to focus exclusively on infrastructure throughout the Southeast United States, and we'll also touch on some infrastructure here in New Orleans as well. So we hope everybody that's listening can join us next time. And again, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And if you like this episode, tell a friend. You can also find transcripts, links, and more on our website, adamsandreese.com.